Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome once again, wherever you are in our great country or also around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel. Just always excited to be with you and share another edition of All Rise. You you know, my prior listeners, that we focus on things that we have in common with our libertarian values. What responsibility, truth, discussion, open discussions, live and let live, uh, reliability, enforce the laws, have reasonable laws. And if we do that, we will all rise together, which is really what we're talking about. So today we have a really interesting guest. Well, I think we always do, but this is Larissa Bolivar. Uh, Larissa, L-A-R-I-S-A. I'm not sure if you pronounce it Bolivar or or, or what, but we'll, we'll get to it. The only Bolivar I've ever heard of before Larissa was named Simon Bolivar, and uh, he was a the freedom fighter down in, uh, I guess it was Bolivia, Venezuela, but but uh, she is actually the president of the Cannabis Consumers Union. Uh, actually, no, Cons- Consumers Coalition out of Denver, Colorado, and she's involved with cannabis, knows a great deal about cannabis. Uh, I think, and I've said this on All Rise numbers of times, that the federal government back in 1937 committed a crime against all of us, not only by passing the Marijuana Tax Act, uh, which did not make marijuana illegal, just put a ridiculous tax on it, and then if you didn't pay the tax in your transaction, be prosecuted for tax laws. But what they also did was prohibit any form of research with regard to marijuana. Actually, it was it was called cannabis back then, and they've gone to Congress and said, we want to make cannabis illegal. People would have laughed at them. But uh, they coined a new word, marijuana, uh, which basically keep those Mexicans away from our white women was was what was literally uh, pushed on them. But but welcome, Larissa. Tell us a little bit about your background, uh, how you pronounce your last name. Are you re- are you in any fashion related to Simone Bolivar? And uh, just welcome to All Rise. Oh, hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Judge Jim Gray. I really appreciate being on the show. Um, you know, my name it's. I pronounce it in America, Larissa Bolivar. Um, Bolivar is how it's pronounced officially. There's an accent over the I. Um, we are descendants of the Bolivar family. My dad likes to say, Nos Bolivar somos hermanos, where as Bolivars, we're brothers. And um, he didn't, I think it's like a great great uncle or cousin or something like that. My mom's working on family trees right now. But um, growing up with being a Bolivar, obviously, I grew up very revolutionary, and cannabis <laughs> was what I picked as my revolution. And really, because of the implications of the drug war on liberty itself, I really feel like if Simon Bolivar were alive today, and if he saw the issues in Latin America related to Amer- North American policy, when his intent was actually to unite North and South America, he was trying to create a similar republic in Latin America. It was just a little bit harder because the governments there had been established a lot longer than 
our 13 colonies when we established, when we launched the Revolutionary War, when he launched uh, the uh, revolution in Latin America, he already had uh, countries being controlled by viceroys for Spain, and, you know, we think we deal with corruption now. You know, huh. from my understanding and my studies, it was really bad then. Um, and, you know, fast forward to today, my dad moved to the United States as a uh, refugee seeking asylum in 1969, when um, the United States started getting involved in Latin America, there was a regime change in Peru, and he moved here to Washington, D.C., um, seeking asylum, and then moved our family in. So, you know, it's definitely a source of pride. Um, you know, people pronounce Bolivar different ways. I know that, and there's a few cities in the, in the South called Bolivar, but it's spelled Bolivar, and, um, which is fine. When I show up in town, people are like, oh, is this your town? <laughs> <laughs> well, you came from Peru. Your family came from Peru. Did I understand that correctly? Uh -huh. Correct. So Simon Bolivar is from Venezuela, and he died in Colombia, or was buried in Colombia or something. Um, Bolivia is actually named after him, and he was the president of Peru, where his um, his love, Manuela Saiz, uh, was exiled to. Well, and let me, ask, so, let, let me uh -huh. ask you a question that... Uh -huh. I took a public position as a sitting judge back in 1992 and held a press uh -huh. conference saying our, our nation's policy of drug prohibition is not working. And among other things, we have corrupted most or much of Latin America uh, and because of our drug money. And uh, you look oh, yeah. at the Mexican drug cartels and Colombia and Peru and the rest. Tell us, what, what has our drug money done to your native Peru and Latin America, Larissa? Well, you know, I mean, the reason why you see so many people immigrating to the North America is why what you see what's happening in Latin America. I mean, I myself have PTSD. I was born in the United States, but I went to Peru in the 80s where they were still fighting each other. Cartels didn't, weren't even created until the drug war. Prior to that, it was the indigenous communities cultivating, like in Latin America and Peru and Bolivia, it was the, the Incas who, you know, a ruling class of, of Indians who farmed coca, which is what they make cocaine from. But then the United States was who refined cocaine, and it became a drug where people put it up their nose and in their arms. We don't do that in our culture. We make tea. Um, <laughs> it's like coffee. It's not sure. anything like what you see on the streets. Um, or lozenges that help with nausea and coughing. Um, it's not, for us, it's a medicine just like marijuana. And once I started explaining that to my dad, because my dad actually did an intervention at one point when I uh, I was raided in 2004, and he got really nervous about what I, you know, I didn't tell my family what I was doing, and then when they found out, they got kind of mad. My mom was working in law enforcement for a vice squad at the time. <laughs> so they were both like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, you did get, Larissa, you did get involved with cannabis. Uh, tell us how you became involved with it, and you're certainly an activist and very knowledgeable with regard to this, but, but uh, tell us how you first came involved with cannabis. So I started consuming cannabis in high school in the 90s. Um, I, you know, because of my unusual childhood, you know, I had a lot of trauma, um, and I wasn't doing so well in school. I had a very hard time focusing, you know, I'm not, you know, as much as I do public speaking, I'm kind of shy, and, you know, I, 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 I tried cannabis right, right before I turned 16, the summer I turned 16, and I remember looking at my friends, and I had already tried alcohol, 
And, you know, I just, I just knew right away that they were lying to us. And then, you know, I never had any interest in doing the harder drugs, but I noticed right away that I felt really relaxed and I didn't have, like, you know, to describe anxiety or PTSD, it's almost like, you know, you're constantly on fight, flight, or, 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 or flee, freeze, I mean. And so, you know, it's like an underlining, uh, you know, current of anxiety in your skin. I don't know how to describe it. It's just uncomfortableness. It went away. And then I started smoking it more regularly. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, I started getting, I went from BCs and S to ABs and Cs, and I actually enjoyed doing homework. And it was because it, it removed the stress from it all, because I was already already struggling with PTSD undiagnosed, and things like homework and pressure were actually working against me, and I didn't realize this. Um, you know, and then, of course, my mom would notice, you know, that I would come home sometimes maybe a little more giggly than usual, and my eyes would be glazed, and she would not smell alcohol. But, you know, being in law enforcement, she was really, you know, kind of annoying as a mom when it came to that kind of stuff. You know, what are you on? What are you doing? And, you know, I told her that, you know, well, she tricked me into a P test and, you know, I had to come clean, literally. And mm-hmm. I told her that it was helping me and she got mad and said that, no, you know, alcoholics say the same thing and they're functional alcoholics. You're just a functional stoner. And I'm like, no, it's not the same. <laughs> and so I, you know, knew then and there that we were being misled. And so fast forward to the late 90s, I was recruiting for uh, the government. I was working um, in, in hightech.com and still consuming, staffing high-level government contracts, but working for a contracting firm, so I didn't myself didn't have to have a clearance. And my boyfriend, who was my weed guy, convinced me to move to Colorado in the late 90s. He moved here first, and then I, I came out here um, after we got married. He came back to Virginia, we got married, and moved out here uh, to basically take it, not, you know, to, as medical marijuana refugees. I don't know, you know, I mean, that term is used very frequently now. It was not used at all then. But Virginia, where I was living, was a zero-tolerant state where seeds and stems land you a felony. Um, so I, you know, took the risk and moved out to Colorado. And the rest is literally history. Um, I, start, I met Ken Gorman, who, who's a libertarian. He uh, was sadly murdered in 2007, I think, you know. It was a political hit, but that's a whole other story. But that's actually how I learned about the Libertarian Party. Um, you know, Virginia being a, a solidly red state until recently, um, I really enjoyed learning about the Libertarian Party, and it really just vibes with the marijuana movement and the notions of liberty and freedom. Um, and then that's where I read The Emperor Wears No Clothes and saw how the policy was manipulated on it. And that's actually how I got interested in, in, in policy and politics and activism. And then meeting my first patients. And mind you, I'm 25 years old, very impressionable, and I'm meeting people with diseases I had never heard of. And, you know, it was giving me anxiety, <laughs> more anxiety, just to realize that there was just so many chronic issues, which then exposed healthcare issues. Then it exposed, yes. you know, other, I mean, it just, it opened up a whole new world for me. Well, Larissa, my wife has asked me to inject a little intentional silliness into my All Rise shows, and usually I do it <laughs> the first thing after the break, but because of what you said, this is actually, it's funny because this is what I was planning on saying uh, later. I'm going to say it right now because do you know what the opposite spelling of the word stressed is? You spell the word stressed backwards, and it comes out to be desserts. 
And uh, mm-hmm. that was something I hadn't <laughs> noticed before, but it fits right in with what you were saying. Yes. The opposite of stressed is desserts. In other words, uh, yes. <laughs> so that that's, 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 you had the obligatory chuckle as well from my guests that uh, you're, you're required to chuckle. You, you met that right away. But okay, so you, you've told us your story, how you yourself transitioned to go to the state of Colorado. Uh, Colorado was a leader. Uh, and is a leader in our country with regard to marijuana reform, cannabis reform. Uh, tell us a little bit about your history with that that activity in, in Colorado, both with medical and recreational cannabis, and, and your involvement in it, because this is something people should be aware of. So, um, I'm a, well, I'm, I'm technically a recognized historical trailblazer of the industry here in Colorado. I had... Um, if you, my last, well, I, I used to be married, so if you look up Larissa Lawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, and marijuana, you'll find media all the way back to 2004, but myself and my mentor, Ken, and my ex-husband and a group of ragtag, you know, activists and advocates helped shepherd the first 2,000 patients through the registry by finding the first doctors to sign recommendations in mass, and then we started having regular meetings to connect patients with doctors and caregivers who we would train on how to grow organically. Um, but most of it, like, you know, back then, these were all your garage grow- craft growers who were really passionate about growing. So it was more of a knowledge exchange than it was, like, actually teaching, like, teaching people. Um, and then we would gather, like, the best, you know, the best techniques and then kind of just, you know, send people out, you know, <laughs> kind of. It wasn't really organized, but it was something that needed to be done. And then in um, 2005, we uh, got an official storefront. So all of this was before the uh, House Bill 1824, which regulated the industry and created the million-dollar licensing schemes that we see now, um, you know, which I think are, you know, an issue. <laughs> but we can sure. get to that later. <laughs> but... um you know, uh, you know, I, I started and launched my marijuana business with probably a hundred thousand or less, maybe two hundred thousand, if you were to factor in other people and what they put into, not two million dollars to get a license and then you know what it is now. Um, and we were very effective. And then, um, you know, I did not get into the media until I was rated. I'm not someone who pursues, you know, that's not why I'm in cannabis. For me, it's always been writing a terrible wrong and. Um, even when we when we opened a dispensary, it had nothing to do with trying to be first or be in the, you know, anything with the media. It all had to do with being able to serve our customers in the safest, most efficient way possible. With And then we had different security issues. I mean, we still have the same security issues now, but back then, you know, we're essentially emerging marijuana from the black market, and there were people in the black market you know, including, you know, people in our circle who wanted to get out of that market because they care about weed. It wasn't because they wanted to be illegal drug dealers and be like some famous gangster. It's they wanted to grow weed and do it and not go to prison for it. And so, you know, that it just kind of grew organically. I would say only now I'm more strategic. Back then it was, you know, how do we help all these people and how do we create safe access? And, you know, I didn't even realize that there was a group like, MPP, I, I barely even, I knew normal from CC, um, but, you know, it wasn't a competitive thing for me. It was always, how do I best serve 
my customers, which is how, you know, eventually the consumer coalition grew out of that because I'm, I've always been focused on the consumer side um, of, of, you know, whether it's safe access to protection or good quality. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's literally, and they don't like to give me credit for being the first because we didn't, we, this was pre-regulation. So you have, you know, Marijuana Policy Project and normal and folks trying to run around when they're not trying, they are running around arguing that you need this, you know, uh, 300-page regulatory system in order to abide by the eight points of the coal memo, which I think is just protectionist. And so since then, I've been fighting to open up the markets for everyone. Sure. Well, you mentioned MPP, and like you say, it's Marijuana Policy Project, and NORML is N-O-R-M-L, National Organization mm-hmm. for Reform Marijuana Laws. So these are national organizations, and uh, sometimes they work together, sometimes they don't. But I, I can I can tell you candidly, Larissa, and you're very knowledgeable, both from a practical as well as a marketing, as well as a historic standpoint, but I've never smoked mm-hmm. marijuana. I have eaten mm-hmm. some hemp seeds, actually buy them at local markets. Uh, they have not mind-altering whatsoever, but they are quite nutritious. But tell me, what are the positive and maybe less than positive things about smoking marijuana, in your opinion? So, um, well, you know, first and foremost, I know that you know, everybody has concerns about smoking, which, you know, is bad. But in indigenous cultures, we actually consider smoke sacred. So there's that. Um, there's the, you know... I just can't even believe that you haven't consumed cannabis. I'm like, where do I even start with this? <laughs> yeah, and I'm a child um, of the 60s do- at UCLA, and uh, I was <laughs> asked wow. by, my, by my parents' friends, what's it like with all that marijuana around? I never encountered any, uh, you know, even the child well, of the I'm, 60s. Uh, I certainly encountered I a lot of alcohol, however. And that's why I'm so shocked, because that's how I met you. I literally, I've met you at weed events, like, it's like, I'm like, oh, yeah, he has never consumed me. For me, I smoke, I mean, I, I eat edibles. I, I am, I'm half weed plant. I just don't know how else to explain it. When I started consuming cannabis, I realized that it, it was something that helps me function. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm high achieving. I need cannabis to kind of tone it down a little bit and to keep me focused. I'm, o, I'm almost, you know, OCD with the whole constantly working thing. Um, so I smoke instead of, like, I smoke joints instead of cigarettes. And so I don't, I wouldn't advocate for people to consume like I do. <laughs> what I advocate for, especially for new consumers, is, you know, the, the whole start slow, go low. Um, I do believe that cannabis is psychologically addicting. I've worked with patients. I have a degree in psychology. I'm not a psychologist, but as a marijuana caregiver, I've worked with a whole litany of people with a whole litany of issues. And I have noticed that, you know, there there can be people who become psychologically addicted to that. I've dealt with that with people that I care with often. Um, but for those that are new to cannabis, which I do recommend, you know, I know this sounds really out there, but I do recommend everybody trying it at least once. And try, there's so many forms of cannabinoids now, you don't even have to try THC, you can try CBD. But we do have cannabinoid receptors. But for new folks coming in, there's so many options now. They can try tinctures. They can use vape pens. Um, they can, uh, you know, traditionally use, you know, smoke, you, you, all the different various ways to smoke. But, you know, I would I would encourage people to do research, too, prior, because it's available now. Like, it's just, ask, if you would have asked me this question 15 years ago, I would have been like, well, you can smoke it and eat it, you know? <laughs> sure. And you can put it on your skin. 
but you cannot, well, like now there's, you know, I've, it's just, I've done that. I, I've, used, I've used some of these creams and, uh, I tell you, it really does help my aching muscles. It's, it's really quite effective, but we did have here on all rise last October 9th, a uh, Mickey Norris and Chris and her husband, Chris Conrad. And I asked them the same okay. questions because they are active with regard to marijuana. <laughs> And, uh, you know, she said it really makes sex a lot you know, more, more vibrant. Uh, you can really have, you see life differently, also settle down more. Uh, do you share all of those views as well? Oh, absolutely. My significant other is a 30-year uh, cultivator. And, I mean, I, just, I think that cannabis helps relationships thrive in general, you know, whether it's better sex, whether it's communication, whether it's chilling out before you, you know, go way over the top over an issue as opposed to like alcohol where you're literally feeling the fire. You know, in our relationship, we're thoughtful and considerate before we attack each other and we really don't even attack each other because we're thoughtful and considerate. You know what I mean? Good. So I think it just changes relationships. It's not what they used to say about crazed black and and brown men wanting to rape white women. It doesn't make you hypersexual and want to run around and rape people. If anything, you'll rape your refrigerator first. Yeah, you do get the munchies, huh? Pardon me? So, you do get the munchies, I understand. It does make you want to have those desserts, is what I was kind of talking about before. But you were president of what you then called the Cannabis Consumers Union. Uh, When I Uh first contacted you to be my guest here, you said, well, it's changed to the Cannabis Consumers Coalition. Uh, Why the change, just tangentially? So, well, I was actually happy about the change. Um, when I first launched, the Cannabis Consumers Union was uh, a collaboration. I was working with lobbyists from the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, um, but then they realized they couldn't organize. So, the idea was to help consumers, to educate consumers to help organize for employees and, you know, this whole big scheme that just didn't work. It's Colorado. It's an at-will employment state. So, you know, anybody can get fired for whatever reason without even an explanation. And, you know, but the overarching, you know, issue, like I, the advisors I had then, you know, were really stuck on the name union. I wanted the name coalition because I, I'm not, I'm not big into unions or big business putting money into politics, actually, to be honest with you. I fight against that. I fight against, I mean, my, it's horrible. It's horrible what it's doing to politics. And so, and I noticed that when I would introduce the Cannabis Consumer Union, as soon as I said union, people got this look on their face, like, ugh. And then, you know, because there's just such a bad name, it's good to organize for people and rights. Absolutely. But because of the dirty politics associated with all of this, it's not so great anymore. And then, um, I re- but, you know, it was kind of a, sort of a pain point with me and the advisors. And eventually they, you know, we all went our separate ways. I, I kept the consumer union, you know, they weren't board members. Our board members, you know, wanted, um, we all just went our separate ways. And during that process, I received a letter from Consumer Reports, and they told me that I needed to cease and desist because that's what they call their lobbying arm, consu- well, they call their lobbying arm consumer oh. union. And so when we issued, I think we sent out a press release that I don't, we were talking about some sort of issue, might have been pesticide issues, but a member of Consumer Reports saw that we were called Cannabis Consumer Union and they got confused and thought Consumer Reports was now lobbying for cannabis and they got mad and threatened their membership. 
Yeah, uh, you don't want to take on consumer reports, but uh, we just have oh, no, a few but, minutes before a <laughs> break, and we'll hear okay. a few messages, Larissa. But I've heard forever that, oh, you don't want to use marijuana because it's a, quote, stepping stone to harder drugs. I don't believe it. Most people that use marijuana never, ever go on to use uh, any any harder drugs. And if you go back, you know, coffee would be a stepping stone. Mother's milk, I guess, could be a stepping stone as well. But what is your response when people raise that issue? So there's no mechanism, and, you know, Dr. Sanjay Gupta says this, there's no mechanism in your brain that, you know, you smoke a joint and it says, I'm going to go do heroin, you know, or I want heroin. It's not that at all. Yes, there's reward centers, but... You know, what, what they're trying to refer to is when, when anything's illicit, you're going to get exposed to other illicit things. And a drug dealer's job is to keep a person addicted. And so if you're smoking weed and you go and, you know, your drug dealer introduces you to something else and you're already told that marijuana is worse than alcohol, yet you tried it and it's not, mm. there's going to be some confusion there. And that's where people start trying different things. It's because of the illicit market and the, and the introduction to other substances. A random, you know, if you smoke a joint and you never get exposed to any of that stuff, you're never going to be like, hey, I want to go get high on something else. Good. I've never <laughs> met a single person. I, I can't, like, for myself, like, I don't want to be a heroin junkie. I don't want to be a cokehead. Like, I just, I want to be a millionaire. And those things aren't going to get me to that. You know, cannabis will. It's yes. not the, you know, couch-locked substance that people think. Well, Larissa, I, I tell people that uh, no one, in effect, goes and decides, today I think I'm going to become a heroin addict. But, but you're right in the comments. We had this D.A.R.E. program for so long in our schools, and they would tell people, they'd lie to them with regard to marijuana. And even if you were a police officer and you'd used marijuana, you couldn't tell the truth because you're a police officer. But then when our kids realized that we were lying to them with regard to marijuana, then they stopped believing us when we told them the truth with regard to cocaine or, or these harder drugs. So I, I agree with that. We've got to get our integrity back with our children. Because last time I looked, our children are human and they don't like hypocrisy and they don't like to be lied to. But we're going to come back just after these messages and I'm going to start raising issues with regard to quality control uh, and certainly with regard to uh, security and, and more about CBD oil, which I'm certainly interested in as well, with our esteemed guest, Larissa Bolivar. And she is the revolutionary in cannabis. And that's what I'm going to entitle this segment when I, when I write about it and we, we promote it. But at any rate, stay tuned. Come back to Larissa after these words. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. 
You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray again with All Rise. The idea being that if we talk with each other and display libertarian values, we will literally all rise together. And we have our esteemed guest here, Larissa Bolivar. I'm learning a great deal with regard to the history of uh, being a cannabis activist, uh, also about uh, Colorado, and it's been leading the way. Uh, As I said earlier, that usually my wife asked me to uh, imply a little humor in this or inject a little humor. I've already done that uh, with the stress spelled backwards is desserts because it was it was amazing that just was called upon but i can also tell you that uh, i i ran across this saying a little while ago which i will share with you as well which is life may not always be the party we hoped for but while we're here we might as well dance i think that's pretty well descriptive as well and i think larissa you've been you've been dancing under good circumstances and less than good circumstances throughout you might as well mm-hmm. We're here, and we might as well enjoy our lives when we have it. But we're talking about cannabis, marijuana, uh, and how, in effect, the government coined that new word marijuana, because it really is cannabis. But let's talk a little bit about CBD oil or the medical propensities of marijuana, because I'll I'll tell you, I've I've mentioned this before on All Rise, Larissa, Uh, I was running for U.S. Senate as a libertarian back in the year 2004 and happened to be in Marin County and went into a cannabis dispensary, medical marijuana dispensary, arbitrarily went up to some young man waiting, in effect, for his medicine, introduced myself, and just asked him his story. What, what, what has happened? And he said, well, Judge Gray, about seven or eight months ago, I was involved in a really serious motorcycle accident, did real damage to my spine, so my medical doctor had me pump full of so many opioids that I was barely able to function, I'd be in a haze, and I'd still get brain seizures like five or six times a day. Two or three months ago, a friend of mine got me involved with medical marijuana. I have now weaned myself off all of the narcotics, Again, weaned myself off all of the narcotics, and I can pretty much function a normal life, and I maybe get one or two brain seizures a week. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, you know, we have had this medicine in our midst for so long. Everybody would, I'm sure absolutely everyone, including all of our drug czars, would agree if you're going to be using one drug as opposed to another, it's far less dangerous, far less harmful to use marijuana than it would be opioids. Uh, What is your experience with regard to the medical propensities of cannabis, marijuana, CBD oil, Larissa Boulevard? I mean, simply put, I was astounded when I first first moved to Colorado and when I first started working with patients. 
I was simply astounded. I, it's literally just like you see with, when, with, on the CNN show with Dr. Gupta, with, you know, watching people having active seizures and then giving them cannabis and then the, the seizures just stop right in front of you. I've seen that. I've seen spasms just stop. And so, um, I, you know, I've had patients who uh, went into remission with cancer. And, you know, when they were in their late 60s, when, you know, they didn't have any hope. And then I, not only did I see them get better, but I saw them get renewed hope and then even pick up the Bible again. Like, when I say profound, I mean profound um, healing. Both, you know, cannabis uh, as a, as a, as a herb, as a medicine, promotes homeostasis in the body, which is balance. It literally puts your system into balance. What people also should know is that this homeostasis isn't just your organs and your blood flow and your, you know, your central nervous system. This is also your mind and also your spirit because they all align. When you're, you know, even if you're atheist, you, you still meditate and relax and, you know, think about things, explore your mind. If you believe in God, then that's where you find refuge. Cannabis helps with that as well. So you're looking at a holistic healing. You're looking at putting yourself in a space mentally to put yourself in a space of healing so that you're calm and receptive to the healing. And then that helps your mind. And then that helps your body. And so once I started learning this, I started learning why, you know, you know, cannabis was such a threat economically because, you know, most people who consume cannabis, it, for example, I, I, I see my doctor regularly. I get regular physicals. I'm very into health. Um, but I rarely get sick. You know, I'm, I'm very rarely sick. I'm very in shape. I eat a lot of food, but I, I like exercising. You know, it's just co- contrary to what the stereotypical stigma of stoner is, is not usually the case. You know, it's, you know, I found that people often come to cannabis to make it as part, a part of their whole wellness program, not just to get stoned. Sure, sure. Well, tell and and do you believe that that the CBD has these medical properties, or is it the THC, or is it a combination? I know you're not a medical doctor, but you know a lot more about it than I do. Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, I'm not a medical doctor, but yeah, I've been you know immersing cannabis my whole adult life, and um, absolutely, do I see uh, value in CBD therapeutic value? Absolutely, I have. A, a company, Bolivar Hemp Company. We make topicals and tinctures, which aren't even on the website yet. Um, I test everything for a year before I put products up. Um, but um, I see, you know, I I use our own creams, but we use crude and we refine it from there. So we maintain most of the cannabinoids. Um, you know, we try to, to at least because I do believe in whole plant medicine. However, CBD does have anti-inflammatory, anti-anxiety qualities, and people are finding success with that, so I'm not going to negate that at all. I think that the people getting excited about CBD has opened up the conversation for other important cannabinoids like CBN and CBG, which also have anti-inflammatory cell uh, protection uh, properties that THC has. You know, there's THC-8. Actually, that's out. Uh, THCA is THC before it's decarboxylated, which means heated up to turn into THC, which is the psychoactive component of THCA. Um, okay. So when you're, it just depends on, on the refining process, but they're finding value in THCA also. Um, so I do believe in the whole plant medicine, but what I also notice in having a hemp line and a CBD brand um, 
is my family is so all about the business now. You know, like when I, when I was just doing THC, nobody wanted to talk to me. <laughs> and my family sure. were like, oh, I let Issa, she's the crazy one. But now that, but CBD has softened the conversation enough for my conservative family, conservative liberal family, I should say, um, to reach out to me and be like, hey, can you send me some lotion? Or hey, can you send me a tincture? Um, so it's opening, it's, it's opening the market up for consumers who would otherwise never even think about trying cannabis because for example, my mom, my mom literally worked 30 years in law enforcement, mostly for vice control narcotics. She's completely brainwashed. She's like literally one of those people that like, she's fine now, but back in the day she was like your typical cop type third degree giving mother. You know what I mean? Hated marijuana, would never even try it, would never even, you know, she even visited me in my dispensary and, Loved all of my patients and saw that I wasn't, you know, trying to, to circumvent any laws to have a party, but she would never try it herself. And, you know, she's using the topicals and the tinctures now. Okay. She's well, retired. Let me, ask, mm-hmm. let me ask you a question. I, I, that's what I do on here. But uh, would you, <laughs> do you smoke marijuana and then drive a motor vehicle? Well, I don't really drive that much, but I... Yeah, I mean, I yes and no. I mean, I don't even think about it. Like, I don't smoke a joint to drive, I guess. You know what I mean? But, like, if I have consumed marijuana and I have to go to the grocery store, it's not the same feeling as alcohol. And, you know, I think that, okay, I like to use this as an example. I have PTSD. If I'm triggered, I can smoke an entire joint to the head and not even feel high. And that's because my body is u- utilizing it as medicine. It's literally setting, it's, it's dropping my cortisol levels to a manner that's not going to give me a heart attack. And I'm calm and stable, which is probably a better state for me to drive in than being completely triggered on PTSD. I'll run into someone probably just freaking out, you know, and you know, that's the difference or, you know, maybe run a stop sign or something, you know what I mean? Whereas versus being calm, and so I don't like the whole notion of getting super intoxicated and getting behind the wheel, I think needs to be further investigated because, and I, I actually participated in a study in Colorado done by law enforcement on intoxication levels. And they noticed that too. Each person is different and each manner of consumption is different and each, everything impacts um, uh, intox, you know, intoxication and levels of, you know, of intoxication and being able to be lucid enough to drive. And, sure. you know, there were a couple well, people who were like so stone cold sober that the cops were like, you know, well, we, we would never give these guys a, a ticket versus one guy. He was so stoned that all of us were laughing at him. And we're like, yeah, that guy shouldn't drive, you know, yeah. well, Larissa, <laughs> is it, I equate it to working out with weights that uh, uh-huh. the more you do it, the stronger your muscles become and the less tired you get or you can do more repetitions. Is it pretty much yeah. the same thing with the more you smoke marijuana, the, the less effect it has upon you, or is that not true? Well, that's, that. it depends. It's not necessarily true because each strain is different and each strain is going to have a different impact. So, you know, some people, you know, if you're consuming the same strain for a month straight, yes. But then let's say you switch to a different strain, you'll feel the effect more intensely, but really only for a couple days and really only for like an hour. You know, like it's not, it's so hard to compare marijuana to 
anything because it was compared to heroin for so long and then now, yeah. you know, then alcohol where, you know, it's not even like alcohol. Like it's literally an individualized experience for each well, person. I am, I am completely convinced that marijuana is potentially far less harmful than my drug of choice, which is alcohol. And pretty much no day goes by where I don't have some form of alcohol. And uh, if I were in court say, and, and charged with using any of these drugs on a daily basis, I'd be considered to be an addict. I mean, that's almost mm -hmm. transparent. But if you use alcohol every day, which I do, I'm not addicted to alcohol, and I don't think I'm a problem user. But all of this, like you say, it's just, it, it's a whole lot of emotion is attached to this over the years by your mother and certainly other good, well-meaning people. Oh, yeah. they, they're also... My mom would what call, they call you an the, alcoholic. Because of her training, is so she's so, oh my God, I hated being raised by her in that regard. She's so Closed driven by fear. I don't even know how else to say it. She's so driven by fear yes. that everything's wrong. Everything's bad. You know, yes. like that. Well, Where we have, I'm starting to realize we have now that all, pending in, in Washington, as I understand it, what they call the MORE Act, M-O-R-E. Uh, I don't yeah. think it's passed yet, although it's close, no. which would, in effect, take marijuana off the federal schedules and get the federal government just out of marijuana prohibition. How are we doing with regard to that? Do you know, Larissa? Uh, yes, I think, well, first and foremost, I think the MORE Act is the best bill we've seen yet. Um, I think it's the most uh, it, it, it's broad, it's inclusive, it makes uh, it, there's provisions for social equity, which is something I've been working in, uh, you know, more from a free market side, but, um, you know, the MORE Act doesn't have as much bipartisan support as we would like. It keeps failing, like, it, you know, um, there's a lot of support in um, Congress, but the Senate, we're kind of worried about how that's going to turn, but everything's kind of up in the air right now because the Senate may flip. And we do know that we have more Democratic support for the MORE Act. And if that happens, then it will definitely pass. And Kamala Harris is who wrote it, or sponsored it, at least. Um, you know, it was, you know, done, I'm sure, by a collective of, of folks. I know that my master's thesis, Enduring Racial Disparity After Cannabis Legalization, um, I, I asked to create small business loans and grants for people harmed by the drug war, and that made it into the bill. That wasn't me lobbying directly for it, but... Uh -huh. You know, I did the work and the research and that, 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 okay. you know, the comp, yeah. So, you know, that's what I recommend in that formal uh, research paper. But um, I do think that, you know, it's kind of up in the air. I don't think that it would pass the Senate as it is now, just because that's just how it goes. Um, and that's how other past attempts have gone um, to pass uh, marijuana bills. So we'll, I think we just have to see we're in an election year, you know, a month out from or less than a month out from election. Well, so. actually, uh, we're, we're taping this, Larissa, so this won't be, this will be broadcast, but after the election is over, but we're having a few in the can oh, okay. before that. But, but I can also, you are in effect, the term I use is boots on the ground. You are free market. You've been involved with the cannabis consumers, you coalition selling, uh, this this product, uh, you've encountered, I'm sure, various licensing schemes, basic, the state, the counties, the cities, all that sort of stuff. Uh, what do you see the trend there? Because I see it that there, this is going to be a multi multi billion dollar product, and uh, once it gets 
even more legitimized, you're going to see the you know the big pharmaceutical companies swooping in and probably trying to take uh, take shares out of it. But what, how do you see this going with regard to licensing and the future with regard to small businesses in the marijuana uh, sales? So great, great question. This is something that uh, if you want to get a growl out of me, I almost growled when you're asking this because this is. The number one thing the Cannabis Consumers Coalition is working on is antitrust issues because that and, and, and quality control, but they go hand in hand. And that is because what I'm noticing is that this whole notion of responsible regulation that they've been selling around cannabis, which what that looks like is you have lobbyists for industry who pass marijuana, including, you know, folks from Marijuana Policy Project and Normal saying that we need these insane policies, you know, to, to regulate cannabis and that, you know, only five people in one state can qualify to get a marijuana license, maybe 30 in another state, maybe 40, you know, in another state with 10 social equity candidates, but then those end up becoming, you know, gobbled up by big business. So what we're seeing is we're seeing because of these limited lottery licensing schemes saying that only, you know, people with access to $2 million or anywhere from 100000 to $2 million liquid cash, because, you know, people just have that laying around everywhere, especially now, um, especially since 2008. Let's just go there, you know. And so what, what happened is that you had, like, a handful of people who could afford to even apply, get licenses, and then those people who were writing those license applications were the attorneys and uh, advocates who help, not all, but some who help pass marijuana in Colorado, California, and Oregon, or uh, Washington and Oregon originally, who, you know, were selling this, you you know, notion to lawmakers who were very fearful, you know, lawmakers don't know anything about cannabis, really, Um, and then what they do know is based on fear, it's the devil's lettuce, and so it was easy to go and legalized based on, you know, this over-protectionist type of regulatory scheme that may have applied maybe once or twice, but that's it. Like, we, we don't need, you don't need access to $100,000 liquid cash to run a marijuana operation. I ran one for many years and didn't have access to that much cash. They, they say the excuse is so that you can afford all these regulations. So essentially... Long of the short of it is, is you're, you're creating monopolies because then, you know, in order to apply in a different state, so because of uh, interstate commerce issues, uh, because marijuana is federally illegal, we can't sell in between state lines. So we have to open up a new business in each state and go through the licensing process. So what they do is they'll either give preferential treatment to existing operators, let's say if they have a medical marijuana law already, whether they're good or bad, even if they've had pesticide violations, um, it's usually pay to play in these limited licensing schemes. And so, you know, this grows into this cartel and you have this, we've literally created these monopolies in all of these states that impact, you know, well, I mean, the reason why we have antitrust laws, because it, it violates consumer trust. And so they're just passing these horrible laws and you've got attorneys saying that, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll guarantee you a license win. Well, that basically, you you know, you're telling me that you're corrupt. If you're going to guarantee, you know, these are supposed to be a a bidding process that's supposed to be blindly graded. You know, we're seeing fiascos come out of Illinois um, and Missouri and, you know, 
actually, there's so many states that have charges of corruption in the licensing process that the FBI is investigating it now. So we have to clean up our behavior. Otherwise, we're going to, we risk losing everything because if we can't even get licensing straight, they can argue that we can't get anything straight. And well, then that's right. That you, let, me, let me ask yeah. you a question. Um, do you feel, first of all, in Colorado, do you have to be bonded? That is, before you're, you're distributing marijuana, do you have to have insurance uh, or, or not? Or do you think that that is a good idea? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, you, there, you can. Yeah, you, you have to have insurance. I mean, you have to have insurance on your building. You have to have business insurance to even apply. But, you know, like in my case, things like product insurance. And i actually been shopping for that recently. And you'd be surprised at how many businesses are working with cannabis startups, knowing that, you know, we have all these costs, overhead costs, and they'll work with you based on your sales. And coverage, but yeah, absolutely, because you just never know. And we live in a litigious society. Last thing you want—I mean, look at the McDonald's case. This woman won millions of dollars for burning herself. When you know, duh, you should be burning yourself. But McDonald's didn't have policies in place to protect that. Well, that actually, uh, that there was a lot of contributory negligence they found in that lady who was burning herself, putting some uh, hot coffee between her legs while she was driving, and that was yeah. But, uh, at any rate. But that yeah. we can get into that if you want. But but it is important to realize that if you have an illicit dealer in marijuana, you have no quality control pretty much whatsoever. And if something goes wrong, uh, who are you going to sue? I mean, you can't sue them. Exactly. So you basically have to take a gun to the streets, and that's what they do because they're not, they, they have do. no insurance, they have no position. So re- strict yes. regulation and control is far better than the illicit business under all circumstances. I assume I've convinced yes. you of that, Larissa Bolivar. Well, absolutely. But there's there's sensible regulations and there's over-regulation. And of course. They're reg- like the intent, the original mission of cannabis by the folks I inherited the movement from, who are the people who started the movement, was to legalize and regulate like tomatoes and then address the safety issue with education because people don't die from cannabis. Instead, we're regulating it like napalm or like we just <laughs> legalized cocaine. You know what I mean? Like, it's like over-regulated. It should, no one should ever have to have access. It just, I mean, what we have in the licensing process for all intents and purposes is socialism slash communism. If you go to my website, cannabisconsumer.org, uh, you'll find we have an article written on there by a guy who used to chair one of the RNC committees in Missouri, um, one of the districts in Missouri, who you know wrote just about that because that's literally you've got government officials and their and their friends who are making these laws, and you can really see that in Arizona. We actually wrote a report for Arizona uh, showing this, but you can see you can see where. Uh, big business, for example, in this case, Cureleaf, Harvest, and Harvest Company, and uh, uh, Cresco, there are two others that I'm missing, are the main funders of Proposition 207 in Arizona, and then they're creating, and it's called Safe and Smart Arizona, and they're creating the Safe and Smart Arizona Fund. Are you going to tell me that there's not going to be any cronyism and corruption of between course. all of that? Of course, of course. there's going to be. You're well, setting people out. <laughs> yeah. Be careful, be careful. <laughs> 
Larissa, because you're taking a very libertarian position here, uh, and we, we, we talk about this all the time. That no, there shouldn't be restrictions on the numbers of people. Oh, I, let's let's um, let's only have so many hardware stores in the city. No, it's it's whatever the supply and demand would be. You can zone them yes. for some reasons. So you you mentioned your website. It's www.cannabisconsumer.org. Correct. It's not consumers, plural. It's one consumer. One consumer. Okay, good. So anybody wants to get further information, can they contact you through your website as well, Ms. Bolivar? Yes. Good, uh-huh. good. We have a chat. So, uh-huh. so I, we're, we're running out of time here. It's, the time goes by so quickly, but we certainly all recognize this COVID-19 virus, and it certainly has been in Colorado and everywhere else. But what is the status now, and, and how does cannabis fit into the whole COVID-19 issue? So um, we were deemed essential, um, so nothing stopped business-wise. Um, so what we're dealing with now is operating businesses with a COVID-impacted and Trump trade war-impacted supply chain. So uh, business takes forever. That's, you know, it's very frustrating. Our staff, you know, we had to cut back on everything. Everything, you know, but we're still experiencing growth. We're still experiencing growth in sales for Boulevard Hemp. It really hasn't changed too much for me except for the supply chain, just being so mind-numbingly slow. And so my turnaround to customers is slower, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, we were deemed essential, so basically not much of a ding on us, fortunately, thank God. Yeah, indeed. Well... Larissa, we've been talking about the nuts and bolts, really, of the cannabis industry with you, and you've given us a great deal of practical information. You are a business. You're just the same as as any other business selling beer or selling uh, hot dogs, for that matter. So so we should allow people to do business, to be responsible for their business, to certainly have quality control, and anything yes. would be better than marijuana prohibition from my standpoint. Uh, we already Absolutely. mentioned the uh, CBD oil and the, the medical nature of it, but but thank you for what you're doing. You obviously believe in what you're doing, and for good reason. You are, in effect, a cannabis revolutionary, which is what I'm going to label this edition. And just thank you for being with us. We appreciate your sharing your information with us. For more information, yes, go to www.cannabisconsumer.org and you can communicate with our friend Larissa Bolivar, who is related to Simone Bolivar, who uh, was going to make it the uh, United States of America in the South, in, in Latin America, all the way around. But but it's just nice to have you with us. Thank you for this, and we look forward to uh, sharing some thoughts with you again soon. Thank you so much, Judge Shumke. Just a, just a pleasure. So, so thanks for being with us. Uh, this is what we do on All Rise. You can agree or not agree, but we discuss things openly. I think that Larissa has made some extremely strong points. Actually, I don't think she's convinced me because I was already convinced. But but thanks for that. <laughs> and uh, we look forward to you again joining us next week here on All Rise. And I end this session like I do the others by saying life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthened by bonds that help us control. We are American law. Strengthened by bonds that help us control.